Well, back in 1995, Disney had a hit on their hands with the release of Toy Story. It was uh, produced by Pixar Animation Studios, and it tells the story about what we oftentimes as kids wondered. What happens to our toys when we leave the room? <laughs> do they come alive or do they just stay like they are? And of course, this Toy Story told the story of how toys come alive when humans are not in the room. And it centers on this one kind of adorably pathetic um, toy named Woody. He was a pull-string cowboy doll, and he was the ringleader because he was his owner, Andy's favorite toy. And he was, he was the one that was in charge, and everything was just fine until... Until what, right? <laughs> Until Andy had a birthday and a new toy arrived, Buzz Lightyear. He came with buttons that could be pushed and noises that would come out of him and lights that would sparkle, and this instantly became the new favorite toy of Andy. And as Woody realized that he had lost his pride of place, the story revolves around his emotions and him trying to find his identity and to try to win back that affection of Andy. Now, that Toy Story film was adorable. It was the second highest grossing film that year, and it spawned um, some sequels and spinoffs. And it was, it was, in many ways, a harmless story. But the question I want to ask is, is what happens when playing favorites becomes a way of life? It's one thing to have a favorite toy or a favorite sports team. That's harmless enough. But what happens when we grow up and those tendencies that we had as children to cling onto something as our favorite just becomes the grid through which we see the world? Or to put it another way, what happens when we snub, discriminate, or hate people based on superficial prejudice? That's the question that's going to be presented to us today as we work through this passage in the book of James. We've been going through this book, and we've been thinking about the question, what does a real-life spirituality look like? That is, if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and want to conform our lives to his teaching and, and will, what does that look like practically for us? And as you read through the book of James, this really becomes the question that he's asking um, in page after page. If you come to a place... If you come to place your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then what practical difference does that make in your real life, day-to-day -day life? And one of the ways James is going to say that should make a difference is that we stop playing favorites. We're going to call our study today, Stop Playing Favorites, as we listen to these words of James. And I want you, regardless of where you think this might hit you, open yourself up afresh to these words of Scripture, these ancient words that God inspired James to write, as he helps his original audience, and now us, to think through what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in the kind of world we live in. So he begins in chapter 2, verse 1, with these words. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. We might be tempted just to run over that initial term that he uses, brothers. It's a Greek word that, that means brothers and sisters. It can refer just to men if it's talking about a group of men, but in the way the language was constructed, it can mean a group of men and women. It just went under that title. But what I want you to note is James is not just using this as a term of affection or a term of endearment. By calling them brothers, brothers and sisters, he's highlighting a very important theological truth. that Because of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they have now been brought into a new family and a new way of being human with one another. And he describes them further as those who hold the faith 
in our Lord Jesus Christ. That word hold just simply means to to have or to possess or to keep. He's referring to people like you and me who cling to or embrace faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses this this interesting phrase at at the very end of this sentence. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, literally, it reads, our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. Different translations try to get at it as saying, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, or like my translation did, the Lord of glory. But he's wanting to draw attention to them, the idea of Jesus, the glory. There's all all kinds of ways that we might be able to flesh that out, but let's remember what the Apostle Paul taught. He said, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He says that all the glory of God was shown in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, you and I don't have an image of what Jesus looked like. People then did. But but more than just a physical appearance, the beauty of who God was and all his glory shown through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's seen most preeminently for us in the fact that he was willing to lay down his life for us. You know those words from the book of Philippians about Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. So when James brings up Jesus, the glory, we have this imagery not only of how God placed his image in the person of Jesus Christ, but how Jesus showed us the glory of God in his death and subsequent resurrection. And so all that is around the central command here to show no partiality. Literally, that phrase means, do not receive a face. It was an idiom in the Greek language that basically meant to accept someone because of their appearance. James says to these brothers and sisters who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, do not receive someone merely on the basis of their appearance, what they look like, what they dress like. This idea has a long pedigree in the scriptures. Just think back to when God was directing Samuel to bring out the new king. And he said these words, The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I love the way the New Living Translation puts it. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Because God is like this, James wants these followers of Jesus to be like this as well. To not judge people by their appearance, but rather to receive them. And so he says, show no partiality. The way the NIV translates it is like this. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Partiality, favoritism, discrimination, prejudice... These are all the ideas that are contained in this original Greek word. And so what James goes on to do is to give us an illustration of this. What does it look like to show no favoritism? He's going to use a negative example. He says in verse 2, 
For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. He, he literally says, if, if a man wearing gold fingers... <laughs> it's interesting, in the ancient Roman Empire, there were places you could go just to rent gold rings for social occasions. So he's talking about someone who is rich, who doesn't have to rent gold rings for special occasions. He just has gold rings. He walks in. He's gold-fingered. And he's wearing nice clothes. And a poor man comes in wearing shabby clothes. And if you pay attention to the one wearing fine clothes and say, you sit here in the good place. Take this seat of honor, which in that day was up front. Uh, no one sits in the front rows anymore. We actually have these faux rows up here because uh, people don't like to sit in the very front row, so people can sit in the second row. I love that. But if you were a rich person back in that day, the, the seat of honor would be right here in the front. So if a, a man comes in wearing gold rings and fine clothing, and you say, hey, hey, come up here. You get the best seat in the house. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. This poor man doesn't get a seat of honor. He's kind of shoved over in the corner, or even worse, sit down at my feet. Not have my chair, but sit down at my feet. The Greek literally re reads, sit under my footstool. So you have a seat, and you have a stool that you put your feet on. You can just sit under my footstool. In other words, why don't you stay hidden? Have you then not made distinctions among yourselves? James literally says, have you not discriminated among yourselves? He goes on and says, and become judges with evil thoughts. Now honestly, showing favoritism, giving preferential treatment to someone, do you normally think of that as something that is evil? Maybe not something that is, you know, to be praised, but, but evil? James is wanting to get our attention, isn't he? He's wanting us to, to stop and go, what is it I'm doing? If God doesn't look on the appearance of a person, but rather the heart, and I'm looking at the appearance of a person and judging that person, then what I am doing is evil. James wants us to see that. Now, I know that probably most of us right now, wouldn't do something exactly like this if this happened here. But let me think about it this way with you. Like what if someone walks up, and they're, they're dressed in fine clothes, they have their Aggie ring on, you know, maybe another ring from some other kind of accomplishment, and you know, they, they look like they have it all together, right? And then someone else comes in right behind them, and it's obviously a homeless person. They're dressed in rags, Maybe they smell a little bit. Which one would you be most likely to go up to and say hi? Which one would you be most eager to have maybe sit by you? James says, if we favor someone just on the appearance only, or if we discriminate against someone just on the basis of their appearance, then we become judges. With what? Evil thoughts. This is the way the world works. 
If you were with us last week, you'll know that we spent some time uh, unpacking this particular passage that went right before ours. James said, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And with that phrase, being polluted by the world, James goes into the passage we're looking at today and gives an example of what it looks like to be polluted by the world. We treat people just like the world does. Sam Albury in his commentary on the book of James is helpful. He says, true and acceptable religion is actually inclined toward the needy, not away from them. Favoritism of the sort James has been describing is the opposite of not being polluted by the world. It is letting the world determine how much spiritual worth someone has based on economic standing or any other measure. It is a way of thinking that Christians can slip into all too easily. James's point is a simple one. Favoritism is profoundly unchristian. It says, in effect, that someone who is worth more to the world is worth more to the church. And correspondingly, that someone who is worth less to the world is worth less to the church. Favoritism ends up judging one person's soul as being of greater value than another's, and it does all this on the basis of superficial, worldly criteria. You catch what James is up to here? Do you see why he's trying to get our attention? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ should affect the way that we treat other people, especially those that the world writes off. And then James says this in in verse 5. It's really interesting. He says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Let's zero in on that one phrase there. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? How do you hear that? How do you process what James is saying right there? What questions or thoughts come to your mind? Imagine someone might be saying, are you saying that God accepts a person just because they don't have a lot of money? Let me let Jesus answer this question for us. You remember he said how difficult it would be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. This is not some pastor out there just trying to get an audience. This is Jesus saying these words. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Many of us know those words of Jesus, but how many of us remember the context in which Jesus spoke these words? If we go to the Gospels, we see the context like this. A ruler asked him, teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What an interesting question that is. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I've kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. When Jesus said it's difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven, he's pointing his finger at something that is near and dear to all of us, which is our money, our bank account, our upward mobility, the things that money and wealth can buy. So when James says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, he's not saying rich cannot become disciples of Jesus. They cannot be reconciled to God. I mean, we know this is not true from the New Testament documents themselves. Think of Zacchaeus, the rich tax collector, who after encountering Jesus said, I'm going to go pay back everyone that I've defrauded four times what I've taken from them. Or think of Nicodemus, the rich man who had Jesus buried in his own tomb. Think of Lydia, the the maker of fine clothing in the book of Acts, who was wealthy. She became the first disciple in Philippi. But let's ask this question. Christianity spread like wildfire among the poor in the ancient world. Why is that? Why is that? Well, think about this with me. In the eyes of the world, they are nobodies. They were easily oppressed. They were easily manipulated. They were easily taken advantage of. And along comes this good news about a poor man from Nazareth who had been crucified by the empire and afterwards was raised again from the dead and was crowned with glory and honor, who was given the name that is above every name and is seated at the right hand of God and who will come back to usher in a new heavens and new earth where everything will be turned upside down. Maybe we should say right side up. There's a reason why Christianity spread so wildly among the ancient world of the poor. So he says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom? The kingdom is referring, James is referring to here, is, is what Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, the new heavens and new earth that is coming, in which everything will be different. So God has honored the poor of this world to be rich in faith, but James says, You have dishonored the poor. And that must have been jarring for them. (laughs) Many of them themselves poor. To honor those who have wealth while snubbing those who don't. James goes on in verse 6, says, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? In the ancient world, it was so easy to take advantage of the poor. I mean, if we have loan sharks today, they had them in steroids in the ancient world where people would lend money to the very needy. at a very high interest rate. And when they couldn't pay it back, they would take them to court. And what little those people had became the property of the loan shark. They could easily manipulate the poor, assign documents to hand over their property, not knowing what they were doing. This was rampant all over the place. And then James says in verse 7, Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? What is that honorable name that they were called by? But it might be that name of Christ. The rich have no need for Christ, and so they blaspheme his name. It might be Christ, but I think it might be that word Christian. 
you and I call ourselves Christians because we follow Jesus. But did you know in the ancient world that was first used on the, on the lips of the enemies of the early movement of Jesus? It was not a, a term of praise or endearment. It was, it was a slander. She says, these folks are the very ones who often blaspheme the name by which you have been called. So what is James getting at here? What is the value of this for us? Let me summarize it like this. Christians should excel at welcoming others, not those who play favorites based on superficial reasons. We should excel at welcoming other people, especially those who are not like us. We should not play favorites based on superficial reasons. Let's take the the notion of doing this out of the context of a church and let's put it in the context of a party. You think about this. If someone throws a party, who are they most likely to invite? I mean, we throw parties, we we invite friends and, and family, right? Let's put that aside for a second. When we're not inviting friends and family and we throw parties, what are we doing? Who do we invite? It's not usually those that somehow could be an advantage to us. Maybe a potential client or some new people that we could sign up for our business. Maybe it's someone that could advantage us in some way. Maybe someone who could give us a loan or someone who can open doors or make connections for us. That's the way the world works. It's interesting. Jesus tells us to throw different kinds of parties. There's a place in the Gospels which we're told that one Sabbath, when he, that is Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Jesus went to a dinner party of the rich and famous. Not only was this man a Pharisee, the category of people that Jesus said loved money, but here was a ruler of the Pharisees, kind of the cream of the crop, the guy who had the most connections, the, the guy who had the most wealth. And so he, that is Jesus, said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you will be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus is at this dinner party, and he knows they're up to no good. He knows that they're watching him. He knows they're trying to entrap him. And he's looking around at this ruler and all his rich friends who have gathered together. No doubt they're high-fiving each other, patting each other on the back, telling great stories. And Jesus is looking around at this. And he tells the ruler, he's like, look, when you throw a party, you who claim to be a man of God, when you throw a party, don't invite these kind of folks. Invite those who have nothing they can give to pay you back. Invite the poor, the blind, the crippled, because they can't repay you. But this is the very kind of thing that God repays in spades. I wonder what it would look like for you and I to throw a party in which we invite the poor, those who are lame, those who are blind. Definitely be out of our comfort zone, wouldn't it? Jesus said, these are the kind of parties I'm looking for. So let's just have a couple points of application, just two this morning. First of all, let's remember the one who for our sake became poor. Our Lord Jesus Christ, from his life's first cry to his final breath, was cloaked in poverty. He was born 
to Mary and Joseph, who were poor from the backwoods town of Nazareth. Jesus grew up apprenticing with his father, making bowls and chairs and things like that for his little village. It seems somewhere along the way, Joseph passed away, and Jesus had to take care of the family. When he began his ministry, he went around as an itinerant preacher, depending on the handouts of other people to support his ministry. In fact, there's a place once where a scribe came up to him and said, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And when Jesus was crucified, the guards there took his last piece of property, his garment that he wore, and gambled it, gambled for it right in front of his eyes. And in fact, when Jesus was buried, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Our Lord Jesus Christ was probably one of those people that the world would easily snub. I wonder if he would have walked through the doors here today, how we would judge him by his appearance. It's a fair question to ask, isn't it? The Apostle Paul said, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for yet for your sake he became poor, so that by, I'm sorry, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus, the King of glory, was born into poverty and lived a life of poverty among very impoverished folks. And he did so, so that people like them and people like us can be welcomed into his kingdom. So let's remember our Lord who became poor for us. When we do so, let's ask the question, what kind of effect should the gospel of Jesus have upon us? If we follow the man who was poor, how should that affect the way that we think about those who are poor? The Apostle Paul was a member of the Pharisees. He may have been a part of that dinner party that Jesus was at. He was among the wealthy of Israel. And yet when he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ after his crucifixion, resurrected in all his glory, and appeared before him, he had a change of heart. And not only with that change of heart, Jesus commissioned him to go and preach his gospel, spreading it throughout the Roman Empire. And when Paul went and met with the disciples, they, they came up with a strategy on, on where they would go and how they would divide this ancient world. And they gave him the commission to preach among the Gentiles, going as far as Rome. And the way Paul tells, Paul tells it, he says, the only condition they placed upon me was this, that I would remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul, encountering Jesus, had a complete change in mind about those people around him. No longer would he judge people on the basis of externals, of appearance, but he would judge people the way Jesus did, by simply accepting them as people who had been created in the image of God and precious, and enter their lives and share with them the gospel. So let's remember that Jesus became poor for us. And here's the second point of application. Let's examine our lives for any indications of favoritism based on superficial qualities in other people. Someone might say, I'm good. <laughs> I don't show any kind of favoritism or discrimination. Are you sure, my friends? Are you sure? The reason I ask you this is because James is writing to people just like you who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who had a tendency to show discrimination and favoritism. Think about the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter understood the good news of Jesus. That it wasn't just for the Jewish people, but it was for the Gentile, that is, non-Jewish world. He began eating with non-Jews because he understood that God welcomed people, not on the basis of the kosher laws of the Old Testament, but on the basis of faith in Christ. And yet something happened one time with Peter. Peter, of all people, he was eating with Gentiles. And then when certain people showed up, some of his fellow Jews who would have looked down on that, he stopped doing it. And we read these words in the book of Galatians chapter 2. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, When Cephas, and that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. So Paul's saying, Peter was getting it. He was eating with the Gentiles. And then some people from the church of James, which is the person whose letter we're reading, came. They had, uh, he all of a sudden had a change of heart. He says, when they came, he drew back and separated himself. He made a distinction. He discriminated. Fearing the circumcision party. Let me just say, that word the circumcision party were fellow Jews in that first century world who believed that it wasn't just sufficient to have faith in Christ. You need to become Jewish if you're going to follow the Jewish Messiah. And so if you're a man, that meant you needed to be circumcised. And then Paul tells us the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas, who was led astray by the hypocrisy, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, if it was fine for you to eat with Gentiles before these other people showed up, and when they showed up, all of a sudden now you're telling them that they have to become like Jews in order to follow Jesus? What's up with that? He says, that was out of step with the gospel. If it happened to those first followers of Jesus that James is writing to, if it happened to the Apostle Paul, and let me give you one more example from the New Testament from the book of Corinthians. It happened to the Corinthians. If you read the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, you know there's this place in chapter 11 where he rebukes them for the way they're abusing gathering at the Lord's table. Paul writes these words, in, following, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, when you get together and have church with one another, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. Why would Paul say that? He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. Well, what kind of divisions is he talking about? Well, he dials in on one in particular. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, which is an interesting thing to say. They're gathering together to eat the Lord's Supper in their worship service. But he says, when you come together, that's actually not what you're eating. And I could say, well, I thought we were. But he says, No. The way you're acting completely changes this table. He says, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Now, one of the things you need to know about the early church was when they gathered for worship, it was basically a big potluck. <laughs> People brought food to eat. And in the worship service, 
in the middle of feasting together, they would have the Lord's Supper together. But you had poor people who were coming, and they had no food to eat. But the rich people were sitting there gobbling up the food that they brought, and they weren't inviting others to share in it. So that when they came to the Lord's table, he says, you're getting it wrong. You're acting like there are distinctions among you. But when you come to this table where you say there are no distinctions, you actually end up abusing it. And then he says this, Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So there's three examples from the first century church in which believers made distinctions among themselves and discriminated on others, showed favoritism towards those who could benefit them, who are like them, and judged others who are not. Let me just give you one more example, a little bit more modern example from our own country. Um, in the early 2000s, my wife and I went to a conference up in Philadelphia, and so, of course, we went sightseeing all around, and we came to Christ Church, one of the um, kind of classical um, architectural structures there. I don't know if any of you have been there, but we went there because it was a beautiful place, and I wanted to see more about it, but I didn't know about how the inside was laid out. It was interesting. You go there, and you can see the pews, which actually had kind of boxes around them. And the boxes had numbers on them and sometimes locks on them. And so guess who got these seats? And guess who got the seats at the front? The people who paid the most for those boxes. Can you believe that? The way you were seated in the congregation depend on how much you paid for that seat. And so those who were prominent sat in front. Those who were not that in the back. In fact, you can go online. If you just type in um, Christ Church and, um, what is it, uh, Pew, um, Pew Records or something like that, you'll get a document like this, and you can zoom in. You can actually see the names of people who had rented or bought or won the auction for these seats. It's crazy. USHistory.org, under the entry of Christ Church, has these words. For 57 years, Bishop White preached from this pulpit. In 1790, if Bishop White looked out at Pew 56, he might have seen George Washington and his family. Pew 70 was reserved for Benjamin Franklin. The box pews were all rented. The balconies were rented with a few free pews for the servants and slaves of parishioners. Isn't that interesting? I wonder if those 57 years, if Bishop White ever preached on James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. What is it about the human condition and even about followers of Jesus who can fall into this trap of judging others based on appearance, based on their wealth, based on the color of their skin? My friends, this should not be the, be the case. But let me just say this as we wrap this up. It's easy to see favoritism in the lives of others. <laughs> but can we see it in ourselves? To ask the question a different way, where does prejudice show up in our attitudes, thoughts, actions, and words? When we walk into a room, who do we automatically exclude from considering talking to based on superficial things? And here's another question. What if we began to see others as true bearers of the image of God, crowned with glory and honor? I was listening to a podcast of a man who said he was studying this issue of the image of God and what that meant in the early chapters of Genesis. 
how it often meant that in that ancient world, not how it often meant, how it meant in that ancient world where only the wealthy and only the kings were considered in the image of the gods, that God created all of humanity to be his image bearers. This man was talking about that, and he said he spent a day, his day off, where he went to the park, and he went to the mall, and he went to the restaurant, and every single person he saw, he said, that person is an image bearer of God. What if you and I had that same mentality? That the people that God brings into our lives, we see as the image bearer of God, and we don't see the superficial things that the world uses to distinguish and discriminate with. Wouldn't that be something? As C.S. Lewis once said, you have never met a mere mortal. These are good words from James, my friends. Let's take them to heart and let's live it.